1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Brian Hamilton of Deerfield Academy, and it's a real treat to be joined by today by Amy Brady. She's the executive editor of Orion magazine and co-editor of The World As We Knew It: Dispatches from a Changing Climate. She's here now to talk about her brand new book. It's called ICE. From Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, A Cool History of a Hot Commodity. It comes out today from G.P. Putnam Sons. Dr. Brady, welcome to the show.
0: Oh, thanks for having me, Brian.
1: This is such a delightful book. It is in turns funny and also very fascinating. And it's the kind of book that you could easily kind of get through and devour in an afternoon at the beach. But it's also a book I was thinking that you could really just take months to savor. Um, especially if you let yourself go down every Wikipedia rabbit hole that is present on every single page of this book. And so I had two different ways of of reading it myself, Um, but it's just really, really marvelous and and congratulations on it.
0: Thank you so much. Your kind words mean a lot.
1: I hope we can start with the, the big picture here. You know, it seems like after you researched both the past and the present place that ice has occupied in US culture, you've kind of come away with this characterization that Americans' relationship with ice is, in your words, an obsession. So what led you to come to see it that way?
0: Well, I had a hunch it was an obsession before I started writing the book. (laughs) (laughs) Every time uh, I have had the fortune of traveling abroad um, and uh, I have asked for a a glass of water with ice in it, uh, the response is always a look like there's something growing out of my head. (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, the, the last time that that happened was a few years ago. And uh, when I got back to the United States, I just started to think, well, why why am I the weirdo? Why am I the, the odd person out uh, kind of on the global stage here? And so I started looking for an answer to the question of why do I like ice so much? And it was really hard to find an answer to that question. And so as I started to look more... Um, into how ice, you know, shaped my my own palate in my own habits, um, this larger vision or history of ice started to make itself uh, apparent, and it became clear that I am not the only American who was quote unquote obsessed with ice. Um, there are a lot of us out there.
1: <laughs> the book goes in so many different directions, and it covers so much ground, or you know, whatever. Insert your own ice pun here, um, but one of the things that comes back to a lot is is social class. And at one point you write that, that those with gold had access to cold. What are some of the places in history where we most clearly see this interplay of ice and economic status?
0: Economic status is clear from the from an ICE perspective from the very beginning of ICE's history. Um, it was a wealthy Bostonian madman uh, who d- decided to launch the American ICE trade. His name was Frederick Tudor. He came from one of Massachusetts' wealthiest families. And he um, You know, he landed on the idea to start carving blocks of ice out of the nearby lake and ship it to warmer climates where ice doesn't form naturally uh, or rarely forms naturally. Um, And but the thing about Frederick Tudor is that he, as a wealthy Bostonian, already knew the pleasures and comforts of ice because his family owned land which meant that they had the space to build what was called an ice house. Now, an ice house, it doesn't look anything like a house. It's more like a well that's dug several feet into the ground where large blocks of ice are stored year round. And if those blocks are uh, you know, kind of coated and, uh, and stacked closely together and coated with uh, sawdust and hay, then they can last all year round. Um, So you needed land. And (laughs) just like today, back then, you needed a lot of money to have a lot of land. Um, Also, ice harvesting was really dangerous business. And so if you had a lot of money, you didn't have to risk your your own bodily harm to do it. You could hire servants or, in some cases, enslave servants to harvest that ice for you and your family. So even folks who lived in cold areas like New England, if they didn't have a lot of money. They didn't necessarily have access to ice year-round the way that really wealthy people did.
1: And you mentioned the ice harvesters there. And another major theme in the book throughout is is labor. You know, you look across your book covers centuries, and you describe in many cases the the intimate relationships that Americans had formed with ice through work. Uh, who are some of your favorite characters who have come to know ice in that way?
0: Oh goodness! Um, well, on the cover of the book is the uh, stereotypical ice man, looking really, very, something.
1: really something. He's really looking,
0: yeah. looking pretty sassy, looking kind of jaunty. Um, you know, with that that kind of jutting of the hip and the the tilt of the head. Um, it was hard work, not just harvesting ice, but delivering it. Um, you know, by the time we get to the late 19th century, ice isn't coming just from uh, lakes and rivers; it's being mechanically produced in large plants. But even at that stage, the ice industry had to get blocks of ice from the plants into people's homes, and so it was done by these burly men who would load the ice into the back of wagons and eventually trucks and then brought that ice into uh, into cities um, and eventually into more rural areas and then would have to carry these 50 pound blocks of ice sometimes two at a time, one dangling from a pair of tongs and one flung in a burlap sack over their shoulder up three six eight flights of stairs and then heave them into the ice boxes uh, of their their customers. So it was really hot, sweaty, dirty work.
1: <laughs> and even the Zamboni owners, I mean, the Zamboni drivers themselves have this really intimate kind of knowledge of ice in a way that I didn't fully appreciate beforehand.
0: Yeah. Oh, thanks for mentioning the Zamboni uh, drivers. <laughs> they are they are a great group because they are as proud of their Zambonis are as, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Golf golfers are of their clubs or guitarists are of their guitar. Like it is, it is like an appendage. (laughs) They, (laughs) they love them. And, um, you know, they have to keep them, uh, they have to keep them working. And, um, Uh, And but just the act of driving those ambonies, you know, over the ice, they have to be very mindful of the ice's texture and the temperatures and the interplay, you know, between all those thermodynamics and uh, considerations of humidity, um, you know, and, and the textures of the ice to make it as perfect as possible for the very specific activity that's happening on the ice, right? Because hockey players, for example, play on a different sheet of ice than, say, curlers do. Mm-hmm.
1: I want to come back to the curlers, absolutely. But we'll, we're going to tease that here and, and leave it for listeners uh, for, in a few minutes. But um, I that's something else I wondered. You mentioned Tudor and the kind of origins of the commercial ice industry. And you mentioned that there's this later successive um, manufacturing of, of ice on its own. And in, in both of those industries and then and then between them, this tension arises around this idea of purity. Um, How how does purity, what does it mean in the the context of ice and how has it been defined and and enforced over time?
0: Yeah. So in the mid to late 19th century, when we have the rise of, uh, you know, mechanically made or manufactured or human made ice, it's still competing with the natural ice industry Right. Um, And these this competition is also coinciding with the peak of the Industrial Revolution. And, um, you know, as all of your listeners know, because they're all history majors um, or history nerds like I am, um, you know, the the Industrial Revolution was a very filthy time. Right. Factories and farms were just letting loose their detritus into the lakes and rivers, Um, those same bodies of water where ice was then harvested and then brought to thirsty Americans who put it to their mouths. And so people got sick. And uh, it didn't take long for scientists to prove that dirty ice was causing uh, outbreaks of all kinds of terrible diseases. And then it also didn't take long for the mechanical ice industry to uh, take advantage of the opportunity and launch a marketing plan um, to show that their ice, which was created, you know, not in, you know, factory waste filled water, but in an exceptionally clean, uh, you know, uh, uh, factory, um, uh, was was much clearer. You know, it was much cleaner, and one of the ways that they advertised this is that they would take photographs of things that were frozen in their blocks of ice as if it was sitting behind a plate of glass. And actually, a plate of glass is a metaphor that Mark Twain himself used when he visited an ice factory and said that it was like looking through a a plane of glass or a, a glass window by looking through that the the frozen, uh, the things that were frozen in blocks of ice.
1: Wow. And, and ice does, it is mentioned briefly in the Pure Food and Drug Act, right? This is 1906 or whatever. Um, but but it's, it's like a slap on the wrist, right? If you have selling tainted ice, is this right?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, there, the laws around serving dirty ice to Americans were very scant, in the, especially in the early 20th century. And even they weren't all that well enforced, Um, And there's all kinds of reasons for that. You know, I mean, one is just that, you know, the, you know, the FDA barely existed, if if at all, at that time. Uh, But then also the people who owned the ice companies were really powerful people. You know, it was they were the robber barons of the early 20th century. You know, um, the the Carnegie's and the melon, the Carnegie's and the melons of, um, you know, of ICE. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then it's really, we. I mean, from, my, from your telling, I think it's, we really see it's the, it's the industry that starts policing itself, right? That it comes up with industry standards and these associations. And there's a, I don't know what the names of these places are, but these ICE you know, manufacturers associations, right? That they set the standards themselves because they're worried about the, the fallout.
0: Yeah. So that actually happened, started to happen a lot later, um, uh, you know, in the late 20th century and into the early 21st century. Yeah. Where they, they finally started to set, um to set some kind of rules and guidelines for the people of their own industry so that it became a badge of honor, if you will, to be able to put on your bags of ice that you're selling that you belong to this regulated industry. And the reason for that is because ice doesn't have recognizable um, brands the way that say uh a soda does right like there's no, there's not really a coke and pepsi of ice and so the fear is that if people were getting sick on ice they would assume it's just a you know an industry wide problem and not just because there's this one ice maker in the back of you know a mom and pop convenience store who hasn't cleaned their ice maker in 30 years and you know serving dirty ice that's making people sick. And so by putting this badge on there, um, uh, people who belong, the the industry people who belong to this organization are agreeing to a certain degree of cleanliness and standards um, where their ice making and distribution is concerned.
1: That's so fascinating. And, and one of the last places we see kind of a valence of, of purity coming up in your book is contemporary... Mixologists and in, in kind of high end cocktail bars in Lower Manhattan and, and pursuing the the clearest ice cube they can get. What, what can you tell us a, bit, a little bit of that story?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, as somebody who can really enjoy a nice cocktail, <laughs> <laughs> I could say even before researching this book that good ice makes all the difference in a cocktail. If it's clear ice, it's just the cocktail looks better and it tastes better. And much to my uh, delight, and it was also kind of an ego stroke reading this book, um, some very fancy and important mixologists confirmed (laughs) that decision. Um, And so... uh, Yeah. And so what uh, has really been the case for, you know, the last 15 or 20 years or so is that, you know, bartenders at, you know, higher end establishments are seeking the clearest ice possible to put in their drinks uh, and often to make their drinks with. And um, they get their hands on this ice in in all different kinds of ways. Um, You know, some of them have uh, ice delivered you know, every morning, um, which is kind of a throwback in some ways, right? I mean, there's still ice men who deliver deliver ice. Um, and some places uh, also have what's called a Kleinbell machine, which is an a machine an ice making machine that produces perfectly clear and very large blocks of ice that the mixologists or the bartenders then carve themselves into whatever shape is desired for the drinks that they're serving.
1: That's great. There, there are so many parts of this book that may be like yell in the next room to my partner or text my friends. <laughs> and to, Did you know? Did you know this? Did you know this? And there's so many origin stories that you just never would have under the I mean, holiday and they come, you know, all these things. I think my favorite one is, is the, is the 7-Eleven origin story mm-hmm. could we, without spoiling the whole book. Could we, could we share that with listeners? If you are yeah, want to give yeah. it away? Thanks.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So mechanically mechanically made ice um cropped up in the southern united states and there's a whole there's a, all kinds of reasons for that that go beyond just geography and climate um but ultimately one of the companies that started creating mechanically made ice was called the southland ice company and um you know they sold ice to customers uh you know day in and and you know day out um you know, uh, to people who were, you know, either coming directly to them for ice. Um, but also often when uh, people who would stop to get ice would be coming from like a grocery store or something, you know, I, ice back then was just kind of like stopping to get gas, right? You just always needed to replenish it. And one of the savvy uh, managers of uh, uh, Southland Ice Company Depot was somebody who kept hearing over and over again, his ice customers saying, man, I wish I had remembered to pick up that gallon of milk. Now I need to drive back to get it. And or, you know, shoot, I forgot that loaf of bread. I, I, I'm I going to have to go back to the grocery store. And so what um, he did was he started stocking these household staples alongside the ice that was for sale. And customers loved it. They, it suddenly became this one-stop shop for just kind of a, a weekly refresh of their kitchen and um other uh, other southland ice company um you know uh, depots started to repeat that that same model and it became quite popular and you know other the grocery stores hated it because suddenly they were <laughs> they were starting to eat into their business and um and they made a big stink about it but South and Ice Company knew a great business opportunity when they saw it, so they kept at it. Well, um, eventually, they they became so popular that um, they had to extend their hours. And they extended their hours to 7-Eleven in in the morning, 11 o'clock at night, and um, eventually rebranded to... To become uh, the 7-Eleven stores, and so the Southland Ice Company actually was the model for the first convenience store as we know it now, and that's why you know almost all convenience stores still sell ice. I mean. Convenience stores were a place where you would go for a bag of ice long before grocery stores were.
1: Oh, and it's just hiding in plain sight there because, of course, like we all buy ice, you know, in the summer, whatever picnics for at, at a convenience store. But it is the old; it's it's it has an old timey feel to it. You're buying it outside <laughs> from that weird chest, and you're bringing it inside usually, or you're paying first and then going to pick it up with maybe with an old key. And, it just yep. really, and it's like, oh, this is why this feels so weird. But this is <laughs> uh, this is also, this is how it all began as well, which I think is just yeah. so fascinating. Um, and then also there, another factoid, maybe a public service announcement here is that you can get bags of ice at McDonald's, apparently, in all these uh, the fast food stores.
0: A lot of them. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's 100% universal, but a lot of places. And I know um, a favorite in my family is Sonic because Sonic has that pebble ice. Oh, yeah. You know, which I've heard some people call, just refer to simply as the good ice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you can yeah you can go and get a bag of it for like two dollars or something. It's great. And this
1: is all still holding on to that culture of, of picking up your ice as you go. Yeah, yeah. wow, yeah, Amazing. absolutely love it. Um, so the first half of the book is it deals with kind of the rise of commercial ice and, and how people are have consumed it in different forms, um, past and, and present. And then you pivot quite hard into looking at, at ice based sports and then other uses of ice that are not going um, down our throats. And so, um, can you talk a bit about maybe about process? About how, how soon did you know? how many places this book would go? Like, did you have the architecture pretty early on or, or not?
0: Um, I, I didn't have the architecture set super early on. Um, I, I think I knew early on what what the highlights were going to be. Like, what were the most interesting parts of the history of ice that I wanted to make sure got told? And then I worked backwards from there to figure out, you know, what is the best way to tell the story so that we end up <laughs> at the point that I really want readers, you know, to, to take in. Um, and, you know, eventually I just realized there was, you know, there is, as you say, there's this, this history of the emergence of the ice trade and of commercial ice. but ice also plays this outsized role in our history of food and drink and in the sports we play and in medicine. Um, you know, and it also has a very, um, important role in, uh, and how we think of, you know, air conditioning, and how, um, you know, that is now taking a toll on on the climate. These are all really important things. And I knew that I couldn't fit all of that <laughs> into the same story I, that I was telling about the rise of commercial ice. So I decided to break the book into four parts where you know the first four chapters are have its own narrative arc of this is how the ice trade led to um, our understanding of ice today. And then the three other parts are about how ice plays this outsized role in these very important aspects of our everyday existence
1: yeah great it's really great and then and and the ice sports chapters are all fascinating in and of themselves and there's the, the backstory of the, the origin of Madison Square Garden began as a as nice an arena and all these all these things I didn't understand um, and Barnum makes an appearance as he has in almost every book about, about US history but in another another surprising way he never he never runs out of surprises um, but let's go to the curling chapter because first of all you, you got to curl which I think is wonderful and I think we all want to hear about that um, also I never talk about curling in, a, in an odd-numbered year and this feels very strange but I'm excited to um, so so I'm, I'm sure curling was maybe maybe an early obvious one when you were going to do sports. Um, but what was it like to acquaint yourself with that world?
0: Well, curling is so much harder than it looks. Oh,
1: wow. <laughs> oh, nobody wants to hear that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I like everybody else uh, that I know. Anyway, I get really excited about the curling uh, sports in the Olympics, um, like the women curlers. You know, of the most this most recent Winter Olympics was just. They were amazing, and um, and I loved watching them. And this is very egotistical in retrospect. As I was watching them play, I was like, you know, compared to some sports in the Olympics, I think I could do that.
1: It's, it's the last, uh, the last message of our Olympic dreams. We put all on on curling, right? We could get there maybe. You know, it's like yeah,
0: maybe that one's still within my yeah. reach. <laughs> And then I went to my local curling club where they they put me in the shoes that you wear for curling. They, they gave me, um, you know, all the equipment and uh, they were, you know, they were just like, you know, just just send the stone down the sheet. Just doing that <laughs> took me 30 minutes <laughs> or I could do it without, you know, losing my balance and falling flat on my face. Um You know, I mean, I'm sure there are people who who can catch on quicker than I am, but I'm not. I'm not the least athletic person in the world. But even that, it took me a solid 30 minutes to be able to get it right just once. And even then, you know, the stone didn't get anywhere near near the house, which is the target at the end of the sheet that you're aiming for. Um, so it's, it's actually, it's a very difficult sport to play and I have renewed respect for all of the Olympic athletes, uh, and non-Olympic athletes that play it.
1: <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> and you go deep into the physics of curling and, you know, I, I, is, is it, is it that we don't know what, you know, I love, I love the persistent kind of banal, banal persist, persistent mysteries of science today. Like, I think we don't know why hiccups happen or something, that, that kind of thing, you know, well, we also don't know why curling stones curl, right? I mean, or there's, there's quite a voracious debate about this. Is this right?
0: There's a lot of debate. Uh, why curling stones curl the way that they do? They There's nothing else that we know of on earth that functions quite like a curling stone, right? So when you, you know, for example, you know, if I were to take, a, you know, I'm going to hold up a, a can in front of the camera here okay, so that you can sure. see it, Brian. <laughs> <When super> I... <laughs> <radio. Yep. laughs> right, I'll describe it. I'll describe it for the listeners here. You know, when you send when you send a, um, you know, like a can, for example, kind of down to a slick space and you give it a spin, right? It actually, the arc of its trajectory goes in the opposite direction in which you attempt to spin it. And that's the way most things function on earth. But with a curling stone, when you send it down the sheet, um, the proper technique is to give it kind of a slight, a very slight curl. Um, When you, when you give it that twist, it actually takes a um, the curve in its trajectory follows the direction in which you spun it. And nobody quite knows why. You know, there's been there's been some thought that, you know, there's something about the way that the friction is operating in the front of the stone. There's something there's other thought about the um, the ice itself, since curling ice is uh, something called pebbled. It's not a perfectly smooth sheet. It's actually intentionally made a little rough. Um uh, but nobody, uh, the, uh, as of writing the book, <laughs> at the <laughs> time of writing the book, nobody has um, come up with a definitive answer for why um, curling works the way that it does.
1: I, I don't. I don't have a good segue here to go from curling to carbon, but um, but you, you know you, that's the, the the book ends with some really important chapters on thinking about the the carbon implications of of refrigeration. Um, and you report that the cooling industry produces by itself ten percent of global CO two emissions, which you you measure as half the amount produced by the airline and shipping industries combined, which is just massive. I mean, we know these are, are energy you know intensive uh, machines, but it's just the scale of it is is bigger than I I realized. Um, so how did we get there? And we got there quite quickly. And then and then how successful have conservation efforts been to date?
0: Yeah, well, I'll, I'll say now that, um, well, first, you know, cooling is, is combining, you know, air conditioning and, and refrigeration. And I, and I do focus mostly on refrigeration because that does play the outsized role here. Um, I'll start by saying uh, conservation efforts, or, you know, at least in terms of um, kind of reducing the energy draw of refrigeration, is actually much better. <laughs> now than it used to be. Um, but the, you know the history of refrigeration is pretty wild uh, in terms of its carbon output because um, you know I didn't realize until I was researching this book that the first company to standardize um, refrigeration, which by the way was hugely important right and, and because before we got to the standardization of refrigeration, you know any company could make a refrigerator but it's you couldn't find a replacement part for it. Right. And they all frequently broke because they were often these bespoke made machines. So the first company to come in and standardize, it had to be a really big company. And that company was General Electric. Now, why why do you think General Electric wanted to get in on this new electric technology? Not to keep my meat
1: cold, I don't think. Not to keep (laughs) your meat
0: cold. No, it was for to their bottom line. And so you know, as far as, you know, they were concerned, you know, refrigerators should draw all the energy. Um, and they kind of did. I mean, you know, just like today, they were among the, the, uh, most significant, um, drawers of energy, uh, in, you know, any given American's home. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it really wasn't until gosh, like the, the seventies and eighties, when California, um, built, uh, built when, when California, um, you know, past uh, governmental standards, state standards for refrigeration, that things started to change, you know, it took a while. Um, But uh, the Reagan administration uh, eventually uh, implemented those standards as federal standards. And then, um, you know, about a decade after that, um, you know, the uh, Energy Star program was launched. And, you know, and now we, we actually have refrigerators that are significantly better and more efficient than they were, a hundred years ago but even 30 40 50 years ago um, but we still have a ways to go they are they are still um, major energy draws especially if they have an automatic ice maker in them because those automatic ice makers never shut off you know that's why you can get ice but at three in the afternoon or three in the morning
1: and it, it reminded me of, of a moment before everyone has one in their home or most Americans have them in their home where, where there was a period where we had Communal commercial kind of ice lockers that you would go and you said like like a safety deposit box or like a storage locker today. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. Yeah, I had no idea.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's wild to think about, right? Um, you know, uh, you know, I grew up in a in a house, and we were not a wealthy family, but we still had a standard fridge and freezer, and then we had another standalone freezer. Right. For all the the meat that you got from Walmart and you could just because it was on sale, you know, at a ridiculous price and you could keep it for weeks or months at a time. Um, you know, back in the as late as the you know 1950s, that that wasn't the case. You know, people still use, like you said, um, it was like a storage locker and they would go and they would take something out or put something in and then lock it up and then drive back home. <laughs>
1: Fascinating. Your book concludes with uh, kind of a, a really eye opening exploration of of methane hydrates, which you um, kind of uh, call flammable ice. Um, why do these compounds serve as, as a fitting end to the, the story you'd always plan to kind of get get to the end here?
0: Well, uh, methane hydrates are not the same kind of ice that comes out of, um, of our refrigerator. It's a very specific kind of ice. It's actually a frozen ball of methane, which is a very potent and powerful flammable gas and these um, these kind of balls of frozen gas you know when you we put a, a light to them; they'll, they'll catch fire, and that's why a lot of people call them flammable ice. Um, these balls of methane form, uh, you know, in relatively you know shallow areas uh, in in the ocean, like the um, the continental shelf. Um, some of them form also under frozen tundra. And what scientists have been exploring for more than a couple decades now is the possibility of harvesting them and using them as a bridge fuel to help wean Americans and people in other countries um, off of uh, fossil fuels so that we can enter a a greener future. Um, And there's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of tension and, and, controversy around that. You know, there's a lot of people who, uh, and I completely sympathize with this perspective who want to skip the whole idea of bridge fuel and just move straight to green energy. Um, you know, there are other, uh, people who feel like it's just dangerous to harvest, um, methane hydrate because if you, uh, the, the, their thinking goes, you know, if you, um, dissociate them or disturb them so that they break apart that they will release methane you know into the air now there there are other scientists who i quote in my book who say that's actually not a worry we should really concern ourselves with because if first off like this idea that you know we're going to break open some methane hydrate and there's going to be just like this shooting spew of methane into the Mm -hmm. atmosphere this isn't going to happen um and uh You know, if we do break some open, I mean, the amount of methane that it releases into the atmosphere is a fraction of what humans do. So let's 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 focus on our own human activity here. (laughs) If we're going to worry about spewing carbon or methane into the atmosphere, um, so but um, but yeah, but it's you know it's a really interesting possibility and you know the, the reason why I wanted to end my book on it to answer your direct question um, was because you know the the book ultimately poses a question after looking at this long history of ice and how it's led to the rise in electric refrigeration and how you know through that change has is starting to take an extraordinary toll on the planet. you know the, the question at the heart of my book is 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 it possible, or even ethical you know for us to have ice in our kitchens and ice on our planetary poles right and so you know what 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 can we do and this is one solution and i thought how interesting that a form of ice is one possible solution to the ice problem (laughs)
1: Well, today, as, as pub day, this is a day to celebrate with your favorite cocktail on the rocks. Um, so I'm, it's unfair to ask this question about, about future projects, but I'm wondering after you're totally sick of talking about ice, if that day ever comes, um, are there things you imagine taking up other topics in the future?
0: Oh, thank you for saying so. Well, I will say I am largely occupied by my work at Orion. Right. And so if you don't mind me making a quick pitch, let me Please. just say- if you like environmental books, you'll love, you know, you'll love Orion. It's, it's America's best environmental magazine. We published um, some of your favorite writers. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, I'm so excited about the work that's coming out in that magazine. Um, but for me personally, you know, I'm, I'm actually right now at work on an essay about maps. <laughs> um, you know, I'm fascinated by how, um, you know, maps, uh, in one way, kind of demonstrate man's dominion <laughs> over the land. Um, but uh, in some cases, uh, actually are obscuring the damage that we've done to it. And oh. I'm just kind of leaning into that, that contradiction a little bit to see what I can learn.
1: Oh, that's great. Well, we'll keep our eye out for that and for every future issue of Orion. Um, but this book, again, is Ice from Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, a Cool History of a Hot Commodity. It comes out today from GP Putnam Sons. Its author is, and my guest has been Dr. Amy Brady. Amy, thank you so much for your time today and for this book.
0: Thanks for having me. This is fun.